Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. Welcome to Sleep Talk, episode number 37, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. The theme for this month's podcast is fatigue syndromes, and in particular, chronic fatigue syndrome. We do, you and I, Moira, see a lot of people with fatigue syndromes and difficulties with sleep and energy levels. So it'd be good Mm. to try and tease out some of what is a fatigue syndrome, how does it impact on people, and some aspects around sleep. So we've both been involved in the parliamentary inquiry into sleep. That's been an interesting experience. Yeah, it's been 130 submissions, and it's all wound up wound up now. It's in the, the laps of the politicians, I guess. And we just hope we can get something positive out of it. Yeah, and already there's some positive things. So an interesting experience for me is that once we'd appeared before the uh, inquiry, it very quickly became available in the public domain as exactly what we yeah, said was yeah, transcribed. And yeah. lots of people have been able to access that and see what the yeah, issues are. That's right. It's good documents for people yeah. who might not know the area. Yeah. So even if, unfortunately, you know, we get the worst outcome and there's not sort of immediately a major mm. change from the politicians, yeah. we still have that document to yeah. be able to highlight what the issues are. Yeah, and try again in another another era, yeah. hopefully, as that, soon as possible. And really a strong point for me is I loved the patient representation, mm. the, particularly yeah, in the, the mm. narcolepsy and the hypersomnia yeah. uh, arena. There was yeah. just awesome representation yeah. from people. So the theme for this month's podcast is chronic fatigue syndrome and how sleep symptoms appear in chronic fatigue syndrome and as well how chronic fatigue syndrome impacts on people and some of the treatment options available. Now, fatigue syndromes are really common. These conditions are often really debilitating and come on in teenage years for a lot of people around the time they're trying to do Mm -hmm. VCE or complete their secondary school uh, education. And one of the real challenges is the biology is very poorly understood. We actually don't know the cause. That's right. There's some nice research showing some markers. So Mm -hmm. immune system um, regulation is out. There's some different cytokines. But actually what triggers that is still really unknown. So Moira, in people we see with fatigue syndromes, what are some of the things that strike you? Well, it strikes me that it's awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you said, very debilitating. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions or misunderstanding even from our, from our side of the fence, even the health professionals. Um, there is still stigma that, you know, is it really real? You know, that's an, an, an unfortunate sort of underbelly, if you like, of this. People do feel that they're not uh, getting sympathy or, or empathy or support often. But I think there's a bit of a paradox too that these people who are they're very sleepy or they're very tired, I'm surprised that they're actually not sleeping well. There's a lot of insomnia um, amongst the, the, the tired have got sometimes they've got a lot of time on their hands because things have been so debilitating they might not be working they're struggling in many ways it's really associated often with a lot of uh, low mood and feeling pretty desperate feeling so quite isolated a lot of financial problems associated with it too mm-hmm. so yeah there's a there's a paradox in that um, often I'm treating insomnia in someone with chronic fatigue, that people think, oh, don't they just sleep all the time? And we say, no, not necessarily. They're actually, their sleep's often quite poor and it's hard to sleep. And people who are, it's like this, it's almost a syndrome of being overtired, almost too tired to sleep, mm-hmm. to sleep well. There's yeah. a hyper, there's a hyper arousal associated, I think, with the, with the exhaustion and the difficulty of how, li- how difficult life has become. Oh, nice summary. 
because they're all the things I really struggle with mm. in, in trying to manage mm. people with fatigue syndromes because it's not like straight out insomnia. It's not like yeah. oh, I can't sleep. Okay, we'll use sleep restriction. We'll use sleep debt to just pull it all together. Yeah. Because if someone's already fatigued and exhausted, yeah. you can't it's build up. nervous about that, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. It's really hard to build mm. up that sleep debt. So mm. we do need to take a different approach. Mm. So to get some perspective on what is chronic fatigue and um, a treatment approach, we had the chance to talk to Nathan Butler. Nathan's an exercise physiologist and the founder of Active Health Clinic, a clinic providing services including exercise physiology and treatments such as pacing and graded exercise therapy for people with chronic fatigue syndrome, orthostatic intolerance and other conditions. So thanks a lot for helping us out, Nathan. Oh, it's actually great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. No problem. So what actually is chronic fatigue syndrome? Well, chronic fatigue syndrome is a condition that's diagnosed by exclusion. People need to meet a range of different symptoms. So these can be physical symptoms such as physical fatigue, mental fatigue, concentration difficulties, um, as well as things like sore throats, tender glands, muscle aches and pains, and even bowel symptoms such as nausea, uh, diarrhea, bloating, and even things like dizziness and sensitivity to light and smells. And is it common? Yeah, actually, it is really quite common. The research shows that 02 to 0.7% of people have CFS ME, mm-hmm. um, and that actually works out to be really significant in the number of people. So within Australia alone, there are between 50 and 172,000 people with this condition. And some of the things I find hard to tease out, because, you know, as a sleep physician, I'm seeing people who are feeling fatigued or sleepy. When you're working with people with chronic fatigue syndrome or other fatigue syndromes, how do you tease out those different symptoms that people get? I think the first thing is actually to define the difference between fatigue and tiredness. Mm-hmm. So tiredness is something that we all experience, uh, whether it be the end of a busy work week or even school or having children. Uh, whereas fatigue is what I often refer to as more pathological. It's, it's going to catch up with you. And so I think the best way of describing that is like long-haul jet lag. Mm-hmm. So it's something that you can go, I can get past this, I can do this, but it really does catch up with you and you have no choice but to sleep or to rest. It's really important to sort of understand that, but also a large part is the initial assessment and really making sure people don't present with other conditions that have fatigue, such as thyroid conditions, uh, even sometimes cancer. But generally, with a good practitioner behind us and the referral in, then those things are usually excluded. And what about that physical side? If people find they're either doing too much, they've, you know, they get that muscular fatigue or they need to rest. Mm-hmm. It's an inappropriate level of fatigue, Mm -hmm. I think, is really important. So if you have long-haul jet lag or if you haven't slept for a considerable period of time, you may argue that you are fatigued. But it's fatigue that um, has post-exertional malaise. So they'll do something, whether it be physical or even a mental activity, and then they'll have a lot of different symptoms after. So those physical uh, aches and pains, often people describe as carrying an extra 20 kilos. Um, Someone even mentioned it was like getting off a Velcro couch, um, which I thought was really a nice way of looking at it. Yeah, I like that description. Because often the end of the spectrum I'm seeing is a symptom you haven't even talked about is sleepiness. And that's often... You know, it overlaps with tiredness and the language people use around tiredness and it overlaps with the language people use around fatigue. But much like yourself, I do try to compartmentalise the sleepiness as heavy eyelids, head nods. It's not exhaustion. It's not I need to rest. It's I'm falling asleep or I'm 
really feel the need to fall asleep. So I sort of see that as another bucket again of symptoms. Definitely. And it's really unrefreshing sleep is, is actually one of the hallmarks of the conditions and I did leave out. But exactly like you said, that it's not head nods, it's not n- literally falling asleep, but just something that um, that goes with you throughout the day and that extra weight. And I think waking unrefreshed so people will get the equivalent of what they feel as a normal night's sleep. So they'll sleep for the normal duration. However, they won't feel any better in the morning. And again, that's a really good way of distinguishing tired and fatigue. Because mm-hmm. when we're tired, if we have a good sleep, we'll generally wake up feeling better. And even a lot of people feel that they've constantly got the flu. So if you think of the symptoms of the flu and, and aches and pains and just being very fatigued, mm-hmm. um, as well as tender glands and sore throats. However, that there's not an infectious agent going on. And they continue to have those symptoms of uh, waking up unrefreshed. And where does ME fit in? So this term, there's chronic fatigue syndrome we've talked about, but sometimes it's referred to as ME-CFS. What's the ME? So ME stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis. This term was coined actually in the 1960s at the Royal Free Hospital in London, uh, where they had an outbreak of people presenting with fatigue. And what they found is they actually had a swelling in their brainstem. Mm -hmm. Now, the term itself, I think, is not always the best use, but uh, because it doesn't reflect the condition of swelling in the brainstem. When we look at the diagnosis, there are actually three different diagnostic criteria. There's actually probably four or five, but the three major ones are the Fukuda, Oxford and Canadian criteria. They all exclude other conditions. And then there's the range of those symptoms that I mentioned before. Mostly within the medical profession, they use the Fukuda criteria, but the Canadian criteria often used within research. They're just a little bit detailed to use in the everyday practical sense. And although those criteria don't differentiate different subtypes of chronic fatigue syndrome or ME, you as a clinician working in this area, do you sort of recognise a couple of different clusters or different groups? 100%. So there's been some really interesting research out of Canada looking at subgrouping them into five different groups um, dependent on their symptoms, uh, but the criteria don't actually break them down. We generally see that people fall within uh, different clusters. So we see people with fatigue. There's also orthostatic intolerance, which is a blood pressure management condition, uh, as well as pain and irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, so they're really common ones, but there's also a few more beyond that. How does the fatigue syndromes then overlap with some of the other conditions I've heard you talk about? So chronic pain or, uh, or regional pain syndrome or uh, autonomic dysregulation and orthostatic intolerance? I often look at the Olympic rings when I, when I see a patient that there's these concentric circles and a large overlap. So any of these conditions that you mentioned, you can have them by themselves. So sometimes we see people with what we would call a straight fatigue case, and that is predominantly the uh, fatigue physically and mentally, unrefreshing sleep, and often sore throats and tender glands. But then often we'll see people with symptoms of orthostatic intolerance as well. So that's things like lightheadedness and visual disturbance, uh, as well as cold fingers and feet. Uh, and then pain is predominantly sort of muscle aches and pains and joint pains. And obviously the bowel stuff is around uh, bloating and diarrhea especially. So when we see people, it's really important to get that thorough assessment to really pull it apart and say, well, what is actually contributing towards it? Because generally we have these predisposing, precipitating and perpetuating factors. Mm -hmm. 
So the predisposing could be genetic or blood pressure disorders. Sometimes it can be concurrent stresses in life, so maybe a student going through VCE. Um, but there are also metabolic things like thyroid conditions that we exclude. But then generally we find that there's a, a trigger, so a precipitating factor. So 85% of the people we see have an infection, so quite a serious one such as glandular fever. Uh, and we know that 11% of people that get glandular fever develop a fatigue syndrome and 1% in total actually develop CFS. So it shows the real significant amount of people that it affects. Um, and then we see perpetuating factors. So these are the things that could be predisposing um, as well as just trying to keep up with life. And the people that we see are generally highly educated, really intelligent, and they just want to keep going and doing things. However, the more that they do it, it creates a bit of a vicious cycle where the symptoms get worse and worse and can really end up uh, making them quite disabled. So what sort of treatments are used then for chronic fatigue syndrome? It's actually a tricky thing. When we talk about treatments, because we don't know the actual cause of chronic fatigue syndrome, the word treatment is not something that we tend to use. We mm -hmm. tend to talk about management strategies. And with management strategies, we look to increase people's quality of life. Now, for some people, that can be getting back to a normal life and moving forward. And for others, it's managing their illness a lot better and, and having more things that they, they quite enjoy. So when we look at the science and the evidence base, there's a little bit of argument around this, but generally graded exercise therapy and cognitive behavioural therapy, so CBT, are used to help manage this. Within the patient world, we often find that there's a lot of controversy with these, um, and that's because graded exercise therapy is seen as if you exercise, well, you're just lazy or deconditioned, or if you do CBT, then it's a psychological condition. And this is something we try and move really far away from because we know that exercise is helpful for a lot of different chronic health populations, but it needs to be prescribed in the right way. So often if we look at people with heart failure, so long-term heart problems, in the 1980s we said rest in bed, and the prognosis of these people wasn't very good, that um, their life span might have been for another two to three years, whereas once we introduce exercise in the appropriate level, then that nearly doubled. Um, but we wouldn't get these people to run, and I think that's a very similar thing with people with CFS. So the core thing is post-exertional malaise. So if they do too much, then they get all these symptoms like they've got the flu and can't do any more. So finding the right level um, is really important, but there's a combination of other factors that we put into practice as well. And how does that look? So if someone's been told they've got chronic fatigue syndrome and says, look, come and see Nathan at Active Health Clinic, what are they in for? What does the program look like? So the first thing we do is greet them with a smile um, and believe them. Because I think with this particular condition, often when people are diagnosed, a lot of people say, oh, that's terrible news. And they say, well, no, it's actually quite good. I've, I've got a label. And so what we do is a thorough hour and a half assessment, and we look at a range of different factors. So we look at their symptoms, so definitely delve into their sleep patterns as well. But um, we look at their blood pressures, as well as what they're capable of doing the day, what they found helpful, their current exercise. Um, really trying to exclude other conditions that may present because occasionally as you'd be aware of we see people with narcolepsy or <laughs> idiopathic hypersomnia where they present with a lot of fatigue but it's not necessarily a fatigue syndrome because they don't have that post-exertional malaise so really working with people like yourself and excluding other conditions is very important but once we've done that then we encourage people to build their temple we need a solid foundation to move forward so that foundation is pacing 
Now, pacing is not how you walk or move, but it's really finding the balance in your day. So trying to spread out the activities so that we don't have that big increase in symptoms. So instead of maybe doing 10 hours on one day, 10 hours on the next, and then feeling terrible and only be able to do four, trying to do eight across those days so that things are more even. And once we find that we've got that foundation, then we look at exercise that doesn't make, make people feel worse. And that's really dependent on the individual. Uh, but we also look at other things like the role of sleep, goals, stress and anxiety management, uh, symptom mapping, dim sim, sensitization. There's actually quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so the four pillars we generally say are the, the management of sleep, diet, exercise, and stress. And the roof is made of dim sims. you got to tell me, what's that stand for? It's not st- uh, steamed or fried, but it stands for danger in me and safety in me. So often we know that for anybody that if we have a lot of safety signals around us, then we feel less pain. I know that if I'm playing with my kids and I stub my toe, it hurts a bit, but I shake it off and I keep going because I'm laughing. There's lots of safety messages around me. Whereas if I'm going to the toilet in the middle of the night and I stub my toe, it hurts, but it tends to hurt more. And that's because there's more dim messages around me. It's dark and I really need to get to the toilet because I don't want to embarrass myself. We look at that as an end product to help really try and settle down the nervous system because we strongly believe that CFS is a physiological disorder, not a psychological disorder or deconditioning. And roughly how long would that sort of program run for? So the program runs over six to 12 months. Uh, I think that we often compare this to someone who does an ACL or their knee that you know, you're not going to heal straight away and we need to provide the body space to heal. So generally we see people weekly for about four weeks, uh, usually an hour consult, so we're quite detailed. Then we move it to fortnightly to get through the major topics and then we start spreading it out further and further and to the point where they don't need us. Because uh, it's really about if you can teach someone to fish, then you don't need to keep giving it to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that approach of trying to you know, give people the educational background, some personal experience and the, you know, the opportunity to experiment and see what works for them and what doesn't work and then come back and uh, get some tweaking based on that. But in the end, they are going to have to manage the symptoms themselves. A lot of the stuff you do might lend itself to either group work or online work. Are you moving in that type of direction? Yeah, 100%. Over the the decade we've been running, it sounds quite scary to say a decade, I'm feeling quite old, but we've moved from, we still deliver a lot of individual programs because the conditions can be quite complex. Um, we deliver mainly with individual sessions, but we also have now started to tailor programs or group programs, so small groups um, around of eight to 12 people. We have individual sessions spaced within this as well, because we definitely have found that the most effective. Um, so we target specifically CFS and those with orthostatic intolerance as well as pain. Uh, and we're also running some individual online programs. So we use Zoom and Skype to go all around Australia. We've been in the UK, New Zealand and Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's quite exciting. Uh, and we've also started an online uh, group program as well that we've run through Facebook. So I think it's great that we can see each other's faces and engage. And we've found that a really good way of reaching people in remote communities, as well as those that have trouble actually getting to the clinic as well. And you talked about sleep and there's a subset of patients of yours that you say, right, come and see me, be, sort out the sleep problems. H- how do you pick that subset? Who, who do you send me and who don't you send me? So when we look at people's sleep, I mean, 
We're fortunate to have the privilege of working with you and, and looking at breaking down in sleep into its different parts. And as you'd know, looking at someone's sleep rhythm or whether there's a wake drive problem and it's like having 20 cups of coffee and not being able to get to sleep or whether there be more of a sleep drive where that they the body needs to sleep a lot. So I think trying to pull that apart and then say, well, if it's a rhythm, let's try and work on that. But we find if there's something a bit more what I would call pathological, such as maybe obstructive sleep apnea um, or a central sleep disorder like narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia where there's just a lot of sleep, then we know that they're not going to get the care that they really need. Um, and those specific conditions need to be addressed so that the body can have space to heal. Yeah, I agree. And from a symptom point of view, for me, the the sort of people I might see that then I'll recommend come and see you are ones who are describing more fatigue, post-exertional malaise, but they've been sent to me as a sleep physician because the language they originally used was more about sleep or, or sleepiness. Whereas for me, if I'm thinking of it as a primary sleep disorder, yeah, I'm much more thinking about that head nods, sleepiness, no post-exertional malaise. And so the sort of person who says, yeah, I can still run, go for a run, you know, that doesn't take it out of me, but I'm sitting at my desk and I'm falling asleep all the time. For me, that's a, that's a central problem of sleepiness, much more so than a fatigue type of syndrome. 100%. And I think another group as well as the the people that may be predisposed towards the obstructive sleep apnea, so they might be a bit overweight or uh, complain of a lot of snoring and even sort of waking as being quite breathless throughout the night. I think in those cases it's very important to uh, rule out an obstructive sleep apnea because that can sometimes be, if it's undiagnosed for a period of time, something that can actually lead to chronic fatigue syndrome with another trigger like a virus. Yeah, and I like your point too about the circadian rhythm things. and. A lot of the work that you guys do, getting people moving within their limits, getting them a bit more engaged with the environmental cues that cue in the body clock, can go a long way to addressing some of the biology around circadian rhythms we see with fatigue syndromes. So people with fatigue syndromes have a flatter circadian amplitude or a flatter melatonin profile. And the environmental cues that can enhance that are movement, being upright, outdoor light exposure or blue light exposure, meals and often someone who's feeling unwell just actually gets withdrawn from all those environmental stimuli so an activity program that's getting them back into moving which is what you guys do is actually a great thing for getting their circadian rhythm back on track Definitely. And I think this is where, as practitioners, we really need to work as a team. It's not going to be one person that can help these individuals. We need to make sure that they've got a great support network around them, which is, could be sleep physician and GP is very important. And depending on the person's needs, it could be an exercise physiologist like myself, or it could be a psychologist that we have on our team, or even a dietitian. The other subgroup where I think I can help with some of the fatigue syndrome is because it's so hard to tease out what's fatigue, what's non-restorative sleep that's as a function of the fatigue versus what's actually a sleep disorder, people can actually start to get quite anxious about sleep. And they can really, in some respects, over-focus on sleep and see sleep as the antidote. If only I was sleeping perfectly, that'd be the thing that'd get me past my fatigue and help me to move forward. And that's just the perfect ingredients to get over-anxious about sleep, which is then just a pathway to a vicious cycle of sleeping worse and worse so trying to at least identify is sleep okay and if it's okay let's take the focus off sleep because sleep may be working well enough 
And that's sometimes the language I'll use. We may go through the process of doing a sleep study to look physiologically at what's happening during sleep. But if it turns out sleep looks okay, I'll say, you know what, sleep's not perfect, but it's good enough. It's not the thing holding you back. So try not to get too focused and too obsessional about the sleep, which is a tricky balance if you're feeling tired and feeling like sleep's light and you're waking up feeling tired. But that's sometimes where I'm trying to redirect people into look at what you're doing during the day because the pathway to getting better is more about how you're managing things through the day rather than what you're doing with sleep. And I think along the journey with CFS that actually excluding things is really important because I think it gives them people permission, like you're saying, to be able to let it go. And I often find within clinic, even telling people, you're not actually doing anything wrong with your sleep. You know, it's just not going to be refreshing for the time. And that's related to your nervous system being heightened and high alert. So you're not getting that depth of sleep. And that knowledge in itself can actually go quite a long way to taking that sleep sort of anxiety or or worry about sleep. Because generally you find when you ask a person that's having trouble with their sleep or it's not refreshing what they do, their sleep hygiene is amazing. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. And it's almost like it's too good. And once you start to get too good, yeah, you're overly focused on it and then you know, again, it can sometimes be a negative thing. Yeah, and that comes back to moving away from rules to guidelines. There's many ways that we can get to sleep and it's not going to be the same way every time. So that was great to hear from Nathan. And Moira, I'm interested when you're working with someone who's got chronic fatigue or a fatigue syndrome Mm -hmm. and say presenting with difficulty sleeping and feeling tired and fatigued, how do you change your approach compared to what you might normally do with someone with Mm -hmm. insomnia, for example? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think often we we try a lot of the rules or regulations or, you know, just treatments and techniques around insomnia and other sleep problems are quite behavioural and quite strict. Like, and it's really important to be and really empower people by these strict routines and do this at this time and get up and it's a good and it mostly works like it's you know it's good things of sleep restriction and sleep consolidation and all those sorts of things um, stimulus control in this group of people often I'm, I would always try I would always try at the start mm-hmm. to be uh, go along those principles because that's where the evidence base is etc for sleep however I do find quite commonly that I just have to um, pull back a bit and let's not talk that much around improving your sleep or in, we just just need a, a humanistic approach and a lot of support and a lot of empathy sympathy just validating that there yeah, this is rotten sometimes just listening and and supporting them which of course doesn't necessarily you don't want that to be the structure of helping them manage other people's expectations and having conversations around that and yeah, maybe just yeah, just empowering them, just listening. So a yeah, very different approach to a lot of the other people I see. So if people are looking for more information on fatigue syndromes and approaches, the Active Health Clinic website's got some great resources. Emerge Australia has also got lots of great information about research and where people can go to get more information about fatigue syndromes. So Nathan, we'll take the benefit of having you available and your great clinical experience. So what's a good tip for clinicians working with people with fatigue? I think the first thing is belief. These conditions are not psychological. They're very real and physiological. So nobody grows up saying, when I get older, I want to have fatigue. I want to have pain. You know, we want to be policemen or 
hairdressers or you know something else so i think that initial belief is very important and then to look at things in a holistic way so not just look for say the symptoms but where would these symptoms be coming from what's predisposing uh, what's perpetuating so sort of really from a bio psycho social approach so it's the pick of the month what's your pick of the month dave so my pick of the month is a podcast so it was part of the health report on um, abc uh, or Radio National, mm-hmm. and it was Ian Hickey uh, talking on some of the proposed Medicare changes around psychology. Mm. And so, yeah. it's a big topic at the moment. <laughs> it is a big topic at mm-hmm. the moment. And maybe critics listening to the interview would say well, he was really putting the boots into psychologists. But in actual fact, if you listen to the interview, he put the boots into psychiatrists just as much, if yeah. not even more. The whole health system, really. Right. Mental health, mental health. Yeah. The whole mental health system. So a great interview. And I'd really encourage people to listen to it. Um, and it's about goes for about 10, 15 minutes. But the reason it's good to listen to for me as a clinician is what I struggle with in practice is there are good mental health services for people that are very unwell and need hospitalisation. And then there's good mental health services for people that are um, sort of mildly unwell but financially able to provide for themselves and purchase services. But for people in between, which is actually the bulk of people with mental health problems, there's very poor services mm. and often services that are at one of, you know, fit either the very severe patients or the, the milder patients. People in the middle try to access those services, but it's actually not the right treatment. Yeah. And so I think he was actually pretty wise in the way he was discussing how the current system just doesn't serve those people well yeah. and isn't designed well to provide great quality evidence-based care yeah. for that group. And probably more, um, I haven't listened to it yet, I will though, um, more uncoordinated care? Mm-hmm. Do you think that like he, uh, the team, the team-based approach is what, was he advocating oh, for that big time? Sounds like you heard it. Yeah. That's, well, that's, that's, well, that's absolutely what he was saying yeah. is in that middle group where mm. people have got significant mental health issues that are severely impacting on them, mm. that they need a team-based approach. That's where all the evidence yeah, is. Because that's, that's what we need in sleep. That's, exactly. Yeah. You know, whereas a brief um, single therapist, non-expert intervention mm. ain't going to cut it in mm. that group, but that's what's widely available. And yeah. his, one of his critiques was the proposal moving forward was there's just greater availability of that style of care yeah. in mental health. Yeah. But his argument was actually that's not value for money. What about for you, Maura? Well, I've got a, a journal article, and it came out in the Lancet Psychiatry in um, early this year, um, January, February 2019. But it was it's titled Insomnia Disorder Subtypes Derived from Life History and Traits of Affect and Personality. And I thought, wow, that is fantastic because I'm very, be, very, very interested in the personality profile mm-hmm. of particularly, you know, of people who have insomnia. And we know, and I, I mean, there's lots of, there is some existing research on that. And it's usually they're very high in empathy. And very high in um, neuroticism, which it sounds like a dreadful word, but really that they worry, they worry a lot. And everyone, you know, they all, everyone says, yeah, look, I'm a, I'm a warrior. At the best of times, I'm a, you know, and says, I'm a warrior, not a warrior. <laughs> but they're warriors too. They're tough, you know, good people. That's why it's such a pleasure to work with people. Are, they care. They care mm-hmm. about things. And so that keeps them awake at night. So anyway, this group in the Netherlands had a massive cohort of over 4,000 people. And then they had these five different subtypes for insomnia 
So they identified five distinct what they called novel insomnia disorder subtypes, which we haven't had this before in the literature. This is new and things haven't changed, by the way. Like, you know, we still don't, we don't have this in our classification systems, but we probably should. The subtypes they identify were highly distressed, moderately distressed, but reward sensitive. That is with intact responses to pleasurable emotions, moderately distressed and reward insensitive, slightly distressed with high reactivity brackets to their remote to their environment and life events and the final sort of subtype was slightly distressed with low reactivity why i like this and i encourage people to have a little read of this article is that it just will get the ball rolling i think we need to do more discussions and thinking around that not all insomnia is exactly the same there's a lot of individual differences within how people experience insomnia and not just we just talk about it traditionally as you know start of the sleep you know sleep onset insomnia or maintenance of sleep insomnia but there's so much more to it and i love this article yeah and it gets to the you know it's a way of categorizing it based on yeah, traits sort of personality yeah, traits yeah. and personal characteristics and reactions like just how, yeah. how you see things how you interpret the world and I think that's really useful. Yeah, I think yeah. it's going to, I think we should. Because it then maps a bit better to, okay, well, how might I approach treatment? Yes. Whereas sleep yeah. onset versus sleep maintenance, yeah. it's completely well, non specific in it terms is. of the treatment. And the treatment's the same. Yeah. Isn't it? It's really, I mean, it's, at the moment, we sort of, we just bundle it all into the mm-hmm. same. But there will be differences with different people. Absolutely. And, and that's the sum, you know, that's what so, I, I'd so you love and I, to. We, we have the gist of that from our own clinical experience, mm. that there are some people where you think our standard CBTI package, you're like, ah, great. Is yeah. That work a oh, yeah. And yeah. others where you go, oh, I'm going to have to pull out some components or I'm mm. going to have to pull something out, out of my toolbox. Yeah, it's complicated. To, to do yeah. that, which just tells us it's not all the same. Yeah. Not all the same, but it's hard to know how to deal with that. And so more articles like this will help us to be more nuanced in our approach because we have this understanding that people are different. And and if it's coming from the evidence, you know, the good quality research, then we'll feel comfortable with that. And the the population will get a better, better outcome. Absolutely. And it's a nice framework for both clinical practice, but also future research as well. So Nathan, what's your pick? My pick is actually social media and supportive networks. I'm quite old and I've never really embraced the social media side of things. But more recently, I've really found that it's such a positive uh, area to build a community as well as professionally and for the patient as well. Because of the, I think, the negativity out there, um, we've recently looked at starting the Active Health Clinic Wellness Tribe. And this is about sort of positiveness, you know, creating a community um, with a good mix of sort of support as well as expertise. Um, So I think that my tip is to be involved with it and make sure that it's a win-win so that you're taking from something from it, but you're also giving something to it as well. Great, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So look out for upcoming episodes. We're developing episodes on a range of topics. I'm still struggling with how we're going to talk about food and sleep and what's evidence and not evidence, but look yeah, out for that. They're, yeah, no, they're coming up. Yes, that's a good one. We need to do that one. So thanks a lot for listening to the podcast. And if you've got any suggestions for other episodes, uh, send us an email at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes. And Spotify now has podcasts, so you'll find us on Spotify as well. 
This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.